are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. In October of 2018, I made my first visit to Georgia since the 1980s. I'd never actually set foot in Atlanta or its suburbs previously, making my whirlwind visit for the Southern True Crime Podcast meetup my first experience with the region. I noticed a lot of things about the area. It's green and lovely. The sunshine's warmer and brighter there than it does here in Michigan. The people seem kinder, friendlier. Perhaps there is something to that whole Southern hospitality thing. While I was in Georgia, my mind was wandering, thinking about Jody Brandt, the young woman we will discuss in today's case. Jody lived in Michigan for most of her young life, relocating to Georgia just a few years before her disappearance. When preparing to cover her case, I was lucky to speak with her older brother, Joe. Joe's lived down south most of his adult life, and his voice no longer sounds like he spent his early years in Michigan. His speech has that relaxed lilt I associate with people from the south. Joe told me about Jody, that she was spunky and a free spirit that she was tough and playful. You often hear victims of crime described as someone who just loved life. Well, for Jody, a pretty blonde teenager, it was true. She wasn't letting grass grow beneath her feet. She was out there doing and experiencing and enjoying. The notion that a pretty teenage girl has a zest for living isn't a surprise. What is surprising is how thoroughly Jody disappeared. She was there one minute, a fair-haired girl with high cheekbones and a gorgeous smile. Then she was gone. Her car, a burned-out shell that used to be a Ford Escort, the only sign she'd made it back to Michigan. Before we get too far into her story, we need to talk about Toledo. The city of Toledo, Ohio, sits just south of the Michigan border, perched on the western edge of Lake Erie. Toledo straddles the Maumee River, because a river cuts across Toledo, the city is dotted with bridges. Toledo is also a crossroads for several major freeways, including I-75, I-475, the Ohio Turnpike, US-23, which runs from Mackinac City, Michigan, all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida, and US-24. If you're local, that's Telegraph Road, which starts in North Oakland County and runs all the way to Colorado. It's important to consider this tangle of road and freeways as they are central to our story. Finally, I've been traveling through Toledo since I was quite young, and it seems that the many highways, freeways, and tollways are perpetually under construction. If you aren't paying attention, or if you're distracted, even for a moment, it's easy to become lost as you navigate through the city. Memorial Day weekend, 1994, wasn't the first time Jody made the long drive from her home in the northern suburbs of Atlanta to her former home near Pontiac, Michigan. Jody had friends in Michigan, family. The 12-hour drive was daunting, but to a determined teenager with a good stereo in her car, it likely seemed an adventure. Jody did have a good stereo in her Ford. Her big brother, Joe, had installed a new sound system in the car, complete with speakers and amps, just weeks before her ill-fated trip. So come with me to a warm spring night, May 28, 1994, when Jody Lynn Brandt slipped out of her mother's home and drove off on a great adventure, leaving Georgia, 
and her entire world behind forever. In May of 1994, Jody Lynn Brandt was 16 years old. She had an older brother, Joe, and Jody was the only daughter of Donna Lynn Gully, formerly Donna Lynn Jones, and her stepfather, Robin Gully. Jody's father, who gave her the last name Brandt, was not in the picture. Late in the evening of May 27th, or perhaps early on the 28th, Jody slipped out of the house and got behind the wheel of her car. She was heading north, back to Michigan. She had big plans to visit her cousins who lived in Waterford and Pontiac, two cities in north-central Oakland County. On her way to Michigan, which is a straightforward trip, you just go north on I-75, Jody finds herself in Toledo, Ohio, in that tangle of highways and freeways and bridges and construction zones. It's nearly 6 p.m. when Jody places a call to Georgia, telling her family she thinks she's lost and she's not sure where to go. During the phone call, she tells them that, quote, she thinks she's in Erie, which is a small city in southeast Michigan, just off U.S. 24. Jody may have thought she was still in Ohio, but she was likely a few miles over the border into Michigan. If Jody was in Erie when she made that call, she wasn't going the wrong way, nor was she lost. She was likely in an unfamiliar area and not on the freeway. She could have, quite literally, driven north on 24, which turns into Telegraph Road, and taken it all the way to the Pontiac-Waterford border, putting her close to where she was meeting with family. But we don't know what happened next, because sometime between Jody's phone call home, to report that she'd become lost, and 10 p.m. the night of May 28th, Jody disappears. Her car, the Ford Escort, with the stereo system lovingly installed by her big brother, is set on fire sometime after 10 o'clock that evening. The blackened shell of the car will be discovered early on May 29th, with no sign of the pretty, popular, free-spirited Jody Brandt inside of or near the vehicle. When Jody doesn't arrive at the home of her family in Pontiac by the 29th, Jody's family leaves Georgia to search for her. All they know is that their girl has gone missing. In these days, before computer systems were commonly used by law enforcement, no one had made a connection between the burned-out car and the missing girl. A missing persons report for Jody is filed with the Pontiac police, and unfortunately, it will take a couple of days to link her burned-out car to Jody's disappearance. Once a connection is made on Wednesday, June 1st, the Michigan State Police send a helicopter down from Lansing to scan the area around her vehicle. They're hoping for some sign of Jody, some clue as to where she could be. But the search turns up nothing. They bring in a search team using specially trained search dogs, and they scour the area hoping to find her. But the land search using dogs isn't any more successful than the search with the helicopter. When her brother, Joe, gets a look at what's left of Jody's car, he notices a dent in the rear fender a dent that wasn't there before her trip to Michigan. Could Jody have been the victim of an abduction? The back of her car bumped to get her to pull over, and then someone forced Jody out of the car at gunpoint? Her mother, Donna, clings to this idea that Jody is alive and well, that someone has her, and perhaps she could be released. Jody could be found safe and returned to those who love her. Desperate for answers, Donna Gully consults a psychic who tells her that she sees Jody in Michigan and Jody is alive. Sadly, in the almost 25 years since Jody's car was found on the side of the road in Whiteford Township, a blackened shell of what was once a Ford, there has been no sign of Jody. And Jody's mother, who searched desperately for her daughter, 
and clung to hope that Jody was still alive, passed away in 1995, leaving only her son, Joe, and her brother, Roy, to search for Jody Lynn Brandt. One of the things that initially drew me to Jody's case is that when I shared her story in the Missing in Michigan Facebook group, so many people weighed in. They knew Jody, or they were related to her, and they still think of her. They still hope that she can come home. This is one of the reasons I started digging into her story. Jody's case hasn't made the news or headlines in decades, but her family, her friends, those that knew and loved her both in Georgia and in Michigan, they're still hoping for answers. When I decided to cover Jody's case, there were challenges. The Michigan State Police have part of her case, the burned-out car. The other part of the case, her disappearance, was being handled by the Pontiac Police Department. I've read that her family also attempted to file a missing persons report in Georgia with the department where Jody lived, but the police in Georgia declined to take the case, suggesting that a report be filed in Michigan, which is what her family did. One of the red flags for me as a researcher is that the Pontiac Police Department was shut down back in 2011, and law enforcement services for Pontiac were moved to the Oakland County Sheriff's Department. Would they still have Jody's file? Could it be located after all of these years? And thankfully, the answer to that question is yes. They did have her file. I received a thick sheaf of papers containing reports, tips, documentation, and other information relevant to her case. Sure, some of it was redacted. It is an open investigation after all. But there was a lot for me to read through. We have a Georgia resident missing in Michigan, with her car found in Monroe County and a missing persons report filed in Pontiac, which is in Oakland County. And honestly, while Pontiac has her missing persons case, it doesn't seem likely that Jody ever made it farther north than Monroe County. And listeners, we have to talk about the elephant in the room. This wasn't Jody's first trip from Georgia to Michigan that week. Just three days before she vanished, Jody, along with two male friends, made the 12 hour drive north. Now, you could call this a work trip, or a business arrangement, if you will. Jody's car, her much-loved Ford Escort, was loaded with 10 pounds of marijuana, and Jody was paid a couple of hundred dollars to make the drive from Gwinnett County, Georgia, to Oakland County, Michigan, to deliver the cargo. On this first trip where she was transporting marijuana, it was a very quick trip. Basically, drive up, make the delivery, maybe sleep for a couple of hours, and then drive back. And this trip happened just two days before she disappeared. So when police come calling to Jody's friends and family in Oakland County, I imagine there was both hesitation and confusion. Hesitation because they didn't want to get Jody in trouble for transporting drugs, and confusion because, yeah, they just saw her, they just spoke to her. So it became difficult to sort out which sightings took place during which of her two trips. When did Jody make a phone call? Who saw her? Who spoke to her? This situation also put Jody's family in Georgia in a difficult position. If they admit to police that they knew Jody was transporting drugs, they could be in legal trouble as well, even if they'd tried to talk Jody out of it. Back in 1994, marijuana, possession of marijuana, especially a large quantity, was a very serious offense. Now, I can't say for certain, but I hope that the officers handling her disappearance were willing to set aside those issues and allow people to speak freely in an attempt to find Jody and bring her home safely. Remember, at this point, we don't have a burned out car linked to Jody's disappearance. 
she and her car are missing. Jody's mother, Donna, was not in any condition to cooperate with law enforcement in her daughter's case. Donna struggled with addiction on and off for years, and Jody's disappearance caused her to relapse. She turned to her vices as a coping mechanism. And as they'd done in the past, Jody's uncle Roy and his wife stepped up to help. Roy and Jody's brother Joe had missing persons posters made up, and they hopped in the car, racing north to Michigan to look for Jody. On the way, they stopped at rest areas to post flyers and ask if anyone had seen her. Once they arrived in Michigan, they spoke with family and Jody's friends, hoping she'd turn up. They worked with Pontiac police to come up with a list of people that knew Jody was in the area. And that's when Jody's car, her beloved Ford Escort, was recovered in Monroe. But first, a word from our sponsor. Jody's car was discovered burned and abandoned on Turk Road near Beck in Whiteford Township in Monroe County, Michigan. When the car was found, it was about 7 a.m. on Sunday, May 29th. Now, the paint had burned off of the license plate, so the officer couldn't see that it was not a Michigan plate. When he ran the numbers through Lean, the Law Enforcement Information Network, he realized that the car wasn't registered in Michigan. So he radioed in and asked that the plate be run down to see where it may have come from. It was then that they learned the car was attached to a missing teenager from Georgia, and a helicopter search was requested of the area. They brought in a search team with dogs to try and track Jody Brandt, but the searches were unsuccessful. The area where the car was left was isolated, surrounded by cornfields, and when police canvassed nearby homes, no one had seen or heard anything. In fact, one of the homeowners remarked that their dog usually responds to strange cars or people in the area, but the dog was quiet all night long. The only trace left behind on Turk Road was a huge, scorched patch of concrete where Jody's car sat as it burned. Jody's car was towed to an impound lot, and the car was examined by Michigan State Police, Fire Marshal Division, Detective Sergeant Donald Warden. Warden determined that when the car was found, the key was in the ignition, and the point of origin for the fire was the front seat, the passenger side floorboards. Now, Jody is petite. She's just about five foot three, and when she drove, she liked to pull the driver's seat of her car close to the steering wheel. But when Warden examined the driver's seat, it was pushed all the way back, as though someone tall was the last to drive it. Her family advised him that the mechanism to move the seat was broken. It would take some effort to move the seat all the way back. If Jody were the last one driving the car, that's not the position the seat would have been left in. It appears that someone else, someone tall, was the person who drove the Ford to that isolated spot on Turk Road the night of May 28. In the car, police found the remains of Jody's suitcases, now just burned hinges and bits of fabric. There was a melted cassette tape and a pile of burned car keys, likely what Jody was carrying on her key ring. Remember, the escort's key was in the ignition. Both front seats of the car were consumed, and the back seat was badly charred. There was heat damage to the engine as well. When Jody left for Michigan, she was wearing a white t-shirt, maybe with a cow print on the front, light blue jeans, and she brought with her two pink suitcases, a pair of roller skates, and a pack of Marlboro Red cigarettes. She also took along her telephone calling card. For those of you who don't remember the dark days before cell phones, if you wanted to make a call, you had to have change, maybe 10 or 20 cents to make a local call or several dollars in change to call long distance, like from Michigan to Georgia, or make a collect call, 
which is where you involve the operator in dialing someone's number, and then the charges are assigned to the person receiving the call, which can get expensive. Now, Jody had a calling card, which is sort of like a debit card, but for making phone calls, except you dial your personal identification number before making your call. This allowed you to make local and long-distance calls from any phone, and it was much cheaper than making collect calls. Also, the calling card kept track of your calls, and this, the calling card, was the break that law enforcement was looking for. They wanted to see who Jody had called in the hours before her disappearance. The records are requested, but again, it's 1994. This is back before everything was available on computer. Police had to wait days. Meanwhile, a tip came in that a girl matching Jody's description had been seen at a local fueling station. Remember, Jody's brother and uncle were driving from Georgia to Michigan, and they were putting up missing persons flyers along the way. When they stopped at a gas station along Interstate 75 at Michigan Road 50, or M50, they asked if they could post the flyer, and the clerk recognized Jody's face. The clerk said that Jody came into the store on Saturday, May 28th, during her shift, which ended at 5 p.m. She further told police that Jody used the payphone in the parking lot. Police contacted Michigan Bell and asked for a record of calls made from that phone, but none of the calls logged were made to Pontiac or down to Georgia. Michigan Bell advised the police that if the call was made using a calling card, which we know Jody had, then the call may not show up in their log. When the reports finally arrive from the calling card, there is nothing unexpected, nothing of interest, and nothing pointing them to where Jody Brandt could have gone. I want to pause here and regroup because there is a lot to unpack with this story. So just before Memorial Day weekend, 1994, 16-year-old Jody Lynn Brandt and two male friends were paid to transport marijuana from Georgia to Pontiac, Michigan. And this was a fast trip, taking perhaps two or two and a half days at the most. And when Jody returned to Georgia after making this trip, She arrived home and immediately started doing laundry because she wanted to head right back to Michigan early Saturday morning and hang out with her family for the Memorial Day weekend. But Jody didn't make it to Pontiac where her family was waiting. She placed a call from an unknown payphone using her calling card, telling her cousin, quote, I'm in Erie, and that she was lost. Erie, Michigan, where it's thought that she made this call, is near Monroe, and likely somewhere along Telegraph Road. And again, had Jody stayed on that road, she could have driven about 90 minutes north up into Pontiac and met up with her family. This phone call is possibly the one that was witnessed by the clerk at the fueling station, the clerk who recognized her picture when Jody's brother, Joe, accompanied by his uncle Roy, asked if they could post her missing persons flyer at the station. In the early morning hours of Sunday, May 29th, a burned-out shell of a car is found on Turk Road in Whiteford Township. This is a remote and rural area in Monroe County, and it will take until June 1st to link the burned vehicle, which is under the jurisdiction of the Michigan State Police, to the missing persons report filed on Jody Brandt with the Pontiac Police. We know that Jody has a history of using drugs, at least recreationally, and that her home life, living with her mother, brother, and stepfather, was unstable due to her mother's issues with addiction. Jody did have a solid support system in her uncle Roy and his wife who did what they could to help her and her brother Joe. After Jody made the call using her calling card, the call where she said she was lost and thought she was an eerie, Jody vanished, 
and her car, the gray Ford Escort, was found a burned-out hulk. Her brother Joe, when he saw the car sitting at the impound lot, noticed a dent in the fender, a dent that wasn't there when Jody left for Michigan. Now, is it possible that Jody, a pretty young woman traveling by herself, was intentionally hit by someone so she would pull over and they could kidnap her? Now that we've gone over the broad strokes of this case, you should know that there will never be any sign of Jody Brandt. She's gone. She will never be seen or heard from again. And there are other factors in her case that I would like to touch on. But before we continue, I would like to state that no one has ever been named a suspect or a person of interest in Jody's case. No one has ever been charged or arrested regarding anything pertaining to Jody Brandt's activities in May of 1994. Jody's situation, an unstable home life, her mother's addiction issues, known association with drugs and dealers that she dropped out of high school, all of these factors put her at a higher risk for dangerous situations. When Jody made the drug run from Georgia to Michigan earlier in the week, she brought several pounds of marijuana across the country, and she did this on behalf of a guy named Roland. She'd known Roland in Georgia, but he and his family left Georgia for Michigan, settling near Pontiac. Sometime in early May 1994, maybe a week or two before Jody disappeared, Roland's father was murdered. Police apprehended the man responsible for the murder, and police interviewed Roland, his brothers, and the perpetrator, the man who murdered Roland's father, trying to connect this to Jody's disappearance, but nothing came of it. Police were aware that Roland's family could have links to the drug trade, and it's theorized that this family would not want the Pontiac police focusing on them too closely. Law enforcement encouraged them to come forward with any information they may have about Jody Brandt. But they said they had no information to give. Roland and Jody were friends, and Jody may have been sweet on Roland. It did not look like he had any knowledge or involvement in her disappearance. In the spring of 1994, Jody's mother was married to a man named Robin Gully. Gully also had family in Michigan, including someone that I believe is his cousin, and her name is Elizabeth Gully. Now, Elizabeth Gully has a brother, Anthony Bernard Gully, and he was murdered in the Pontiac area in August of 1994. The man responsible for Anthony Gully's murder was killed by law enforcement in Akron, Ohio, shortly after Anthony's murder. Pontiac police asked Elizabeth if Jody's disappearance could be related to the murder of her brother, but Elizabeth wasn't sure if Anthony knew Jody or not. Listeners, I need to mention that Anthony Gully's car was abandoned and burned, just like with Jody's car, except that his car and his body were both discovered in Ohio. While this could be a coincidence, it seems strange that Jody disappears and her car is torched, and someone that she is related to, even peripherally, is murdered with his car also burned. Just, it's a strange coincidence. Now, we have two men with connections, although they are thin connections, to Jody Brandt. One murdered just a few days before she disappeared, and one murdered a few weeks after she went missing. I've seen another theory put forth, that someone driving in southern Michigan spotted Jody and her distinctive car with Georgia plates. Perhaps they thought she was on another drug run, but alone this time, and she was run off the road to be robbed of her cargo. This would explain the dent in the bumper of her car, except there was no cargo, just a teenage girl with her luggage and roller skates. 
this is just a theory, and consider the odds of her coming across someone who knew who she was and what she'd been up to, but it's something to think about. Something I've wondered is what if Jody didn't come to Michigan alone? What if she drove up from Georgia with someone? It would explain the placement of the driver's seat of the car. Remember, it was pushed all the way back, not pulled forward the way Jody preferred. Also, she knew several people in Georgia who also knew people living in Michigan. I've wondered, could Jody have taken off, left her complicated home life behind, and set out on her own? Sadly, I find this unlikely. One, Jody took care to make her car insurance payment before she left. This left her with only a small amount of pocket money. And two, she loved that car. If she was going to take off, it would have been driving her little Ford. Again, these are just theories. Unless someone speaks up or comes forward, we may never know what happened to Jody Lynn Brandt on Memorial Day weekend, 1994. But I do fear that Jody met with foul play. That young, energetic Jody Brandt was murdered. About a week after Jody went missing, there was a meeting between the Michigan State Police, Pontiac Police, and the FBI about Jody's case. It was determined that Pontiac would continue handling her disappearance with support as requested from the other agencies. And while I'm not certain that Pontiac should have been assigned her disappearance, as it's unlikely she ever made it farther north than Monroe County, it's hard to know who should have taken the case. Jody was last seen alive in Georgia, in her hometown in Gwinnett County. It's certainly possible that only Jody's car made it to Michigan, and Jody met with foul play long before she crossed the state line. In late 94, as bodies, human remains, are discovered in northern Ohio or southeast Michigan, they are checked to see if Jody is a match. This first happened in August 1994, when the body of a young woman is found in Toledo, Ohio. The remains are checked against Jody's dental records, and it is determined that it is not Jody. Investigators weren't using DNA for verification back then, relying instead on x-rays and dental records. The disappearance of Jody Brandt was quickly turning cold. Her car yielded few clues, only that someone tall, likely not Jody, drove it to the isolated spot on Turk Road where it was intentionally burned. Her phone card the calling card that would hopefully provide clues and give investigators a direction, didn't offer anything of value. Jody's mother, who struggled for years with addiction, lost her battle in 1995, leaving only Jody's brother Joe and her uncle Roy to continue the search. They are, of course, assisted by Jody's many cousins and friends who remember the pretty, spirited blonde, the girl who packed a suitcase and her roller skates before making the drive north to Michigan the place where she'd grown up and where she likely died. In the nearly 25 years since Jody vanished, there have been glimmers of hope along the way, like when her case appeared on America's Most Wanted, but nothing came of the tips generated from her segment. Whenever bodies are discovered in southeast Michigan or northern Ohio, they are dutifully checked against Jody's dental records, and now, 25 years later, they're checked against the DNA on file in her case. In May of 1994, Jody Brandt was 16 years old, 5 foot 3 inches tall, weighing about 117 pounds. Her hair was blonde or light brown and fell past her shoulders. Her eyes were a sparkling green-blue, and Jody had two tattoos, JB on her left thumb and a cross tattooed on her ankle. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing a white t-shirt, blue jeans, and athletic shoes. 
she smoked Marlboro Red cigarettes. While her disappearance was initially handled by the Pontiac Police Department, budget cuts led to the department closing in 2010, and their files, including that of Jody Brandt, transferred to the Oakland County Sheriff. If you have information about the disappearance of Jody Brandt, please contact the Oakland County Sheriff's Office or the Michigan State Police Monroe Post. If you would like to discuss Jody's disappearance, ask questions, share theories or ideas, please join our Facebook discussion group or follow Already Gone on Facebook. Already Gone will return January 8th, 2019 with all new episodes. I appreciate you listening and I wish you every happiness now and in the new year. And please be safe. Thank you.